Martin, I'm using the pulpit mic today, okay? We do appreciate your presence, and as has been mentioned, we do have visitors, and we're delighted that you are with us. John chapter 9 depicts something that is extremely significant in terms of one of the great miracles that Jesus performed near the end of his ministry. It was a time in his ministry when devotion to him was increasing, but at the same time, the opposition was also intensifying greatly, especially from the Jews, the Pharisees, and others among the Jews who were determined to destroy Jesus, if at all possible. And so, in John chapter 9, we find the sixth of seven signs or miracles that John records in his account of the gospel. And it is extremely significant and unusual in the sense that it deals with a man who was born blind. There are more miracles of healing the blind in Scripture than any other, but only one where one who was blind was actually born in that condition. And that's what we're going to look at. If you'll turn to John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, we're simply going to highlight this account. And as we do, see some very important and pertinent and relevant lessons for all of us today. John 9, verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Let's stop right there and note something very important about the life of Jesus and the character of Jesus, obviously as the Son of God, but as an example to all of us, Jesus at this time had a great deal to be concerned about concerning his own future. He knew what was coming. He knew it was at hand. He had already talked about it with his disciples. He had a great deal to think about in terms of what he himself faced. And yet, despite all of that, he took time to notice a man as he passed by him. And there's a lesson there for us that no matter what is happening in our lives, we should not become so consumed with our own difficulties, our own struggles, our own trials, that we lose sight of of the needs of others, and that we are constantly aware of the importance of looking out for others, being aware of others, of their needs, and doing whatever we can to assist them. Jesus gives us the perfect example of that kind of compassion. He saw the man who was blind from birth. Now his disciples then ask a very interesting question. They ask saying, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. That reveals a misconception, obviously, on the part of, of the disciples that needed to be corrected and obviously was corrected uh, as time went on. But they ask, was this man a sinner that he was born blind? Would it be possible for him to sin in the womb? <laughs> Surely not. Or were his parents sinners that, that he should be born blind? The misconception at times does exist that if something adverse happens to someone, then surely that individual must have done something wrong to bring that upon himself. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. Yes, indeed, it is the case that we suffer the consequences of sin. We suffer the consequences of the first sin in the Garden of Eden long ago in Genesis chapter 3. 
but we do not suffer the guilt of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, I realize that in the religious world in which we find ourselves today, there are a great many people who tell us we do suffer the guilt of their sins. And the doctrine of Calvinism, as we have studied it here in recent times, tells us that the little child is actually born a sinner. And that's what gave rise to infant baptism. But infant baptism has no place in Scripture because there's no need for any infant to be baptized because every infant is born completely sinless. Jesus used little children as examples of those whom we should emulate if we're to be a part of the kingdom of God. Unless you become as little children, you shall no wise enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Why would he use little children as examples of purity and innocence if they are born in sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son, Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel chapter 18. So Old Testament and New clearly attest to the fact that little babies are born sinless. They're pure and innocent. But there were misconceptions that caused questions to be raised, conceptions that had to be corrected. But Jesus says, neither this man, verse 3, nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, Jesus is simply saying, this occasion, this malady, this blindness that has been characteristic of this child who is now a man, it is giving me now an opportunity to take advantage of that situation and to do a world of good, not only for the individual upon whom he would perform the miracle, but upon all those whose hearts were receptive to seeing the miracle. Upon all those, think about it, for all time to come, whose hearts would be receptive to reading what we are reading about this miracle. You see, reading what we're reading today should produce in the good and honest heart the same effect that it produced among some who actually witnessed this miracle. And by the same token, there were those who witnessed this miracle whom we will see could not deny that a miracle had occurred, though they tried very hard to deny it. Ultimately, they couldn't, and yet it still did not produce within them faith. Why not? Because the heart was not right. The prejudice was so deeply seated that even seeing a miracle could not produce a change in their hearts. That's why we don't need to see miracles today. Not when John in this same gospel account near the end of it says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are what? Written that in order that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that believing you might have life in his name. God's plan all along was to, yes, produce the miracles through his son and through other inspired men who had those miraculous gifts. But ultimately to record them upon the pages of Holy Writ so that in this, the final dispensation of time, we have the whole picture in written form. And that whole picture in written form can produce within us and should produce within us the same kind of faith that was produced in the good and honest hearts who saw this miracle. And then in verse 4 of this text, we see the great urgency with which Jesus approached his work. And as we see that, 
we also see the great urgency with which we must approach the work of Jesus that he has given his disciples to do today. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man or no one can work. There's an urgency there that we need to appreciate. Jesus knew that the time was coming when he would no longer be on the earth. He was going to be crucified. He was going to rise from the dead. Yes, he would be seen by many after his resurrection, but ultimately he would ascend to the Father. And he would no longer be that light that he was at the time that he lived upon earth. Look at verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But let me ask you this. What kind of light? What kind of light is to be in the world today? Jesus is no longer here. He said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But what about us? If we are followers of Christ, if we are Christians today, we are to be the reflectors of the light of the world in our lives because we are those to whom he has given the charge to live and to teach in such a way as to propagate that light throughout a world that is darkened by sin. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. Let your light, disciples, so shine. The light of the world has gone back to the Father. But that light is to be continually reflected in those who are his true disciples. And we're to take that work upon us with joy and eagerness and with the urgency that Jesus expressed here in John 9 and verse 4. Now verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, the meaning of that word Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Well, there's so much here for us to fully appreciate about this blind man. First of all, we might ask the question, why did Jesus use this particular method to heal the blind man? Who here would deny that Jesus had the power to pronounce him whole and to restore his sight by simply speaking a word? He could speak that word to him. He could have spoken that word before he ever saw him. He could heal from a distance. He could heal from, from close by. He could heal by speaking the word. He could heal by a touch. And he did in various ways. But why choose this method? I don't have to know why he chose this method. But from a human perspective, many times we want to know too much about why God operates as he does. And many times we question God. And many times we deny the efficacy of what God has determined that we are to do to be pleasing to him. Thankfully, the blind man didn't question the method that Jesus used here. Oh, we can go back in scripture and we can see some unusual ways in which God chose to bring about his will. You can go back to uh, Jericho, for example, 
And you can see that in the conquest of Canaan, as they came near Jericho and God gave them the instructions through Joshua to do all the marching for the six days and then on the seventh day all around the city and then uh, the priest would blow on the trumpets and when the priest blew on the trumpets then the people would shout with a great shout after the number of times uh, uh, had been completed and after the people shouted, then the walls of Jericho came down. And we've talked about that example and you've heard many sermons about that Example, why did God choose that method to bring about the destruction of, of Jericho? We don't know. We don't have to know. All we know is that if the people had not done what God said, the walls of Jericho would have been standing still. If they had marched as he said, if they had blown the trumpets as he said, but if they had fallen short of the shout that he said they were to do, the walls would have stood because that was to complete it. What about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5? Naaman had a preconceived idea of how Elisha, the prophet of God, was going to cleanse him from his leprosy. And when that didn't work out the way he had preconceived that it would, he was angry and went away in a rage. But his servants convinced him to come back and when he did, and went and dipped, how many times? Seven times in the Jordan River. Then and only then was he cleansed from his leprosy. Elisha didn't even come out personally to tell him to do that. He sent a messenger to him to tell him to go do that. And finally, when Naaman had enough good sense to comply, after seven dips, he was cleansed. Not after six, not after six and a half, but after seven. And we can question all day long why that instruction was given by God through the prophet to Naaman to cleanse himself from leprosy that way. And so there are examples in Scripture, Old Testament, and here we have one in the New, of where some unusual methods were used to bring about a healing. Now, how could the blind man have responded and one more example, incidentally, in the Old Testament, remember the, the brazen serpent we talked about not that long ago? In Numbers chapter 21, when poisonous serpents were sent among the people because they had murmured and rebelled against God, and many of them died, and they cried out uh, to, to Moses, and Moses interceded for them, and God said, make that brazen serpent, and whenever the man looks upon the serpent, then he'll be healed. And they had to look in order to live. Why that method? It was God's method. And God chose this method because God is on earth at this time. Jesus is God. He is a member of the Godhead. He is God in the flesh, and he tells this blind man, after he spits on the ground, makes clay with the saliva, and he anoints his, anoints his eyes, he says, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. What could the blind man have said? The blind man could have said, why don't you just heal me here on the spot? After all, I am blind. It is going to take me a little while to even make my way to the pool of Siloam. I may have to get someone to guide me to the pool of Siloam. Wouldn't it make more sense for you to just heal me right here on the spot? He could have argued that way. But to his credit, even though his faith is not where it will be before this chapter ends, it's still... It's still strong enough that he complies 
with what Jesus tells him to do. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he what? He went and washed and came back seeing. What's the obvious analogy here? I think the obvious analogy to those of us living today is the commandment to be baptized for the remission of sins. I think the analogy is obvious. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who goes to the pool of Siloam and washes will see. What if he had gone to the pool of Siloam but never washed? He wouldn't have seen. Had he never gone to the pool in the first place, he wouldn't have seen. It was only by going to the pool of Siloam and washing in the pool did he come back seeing. Now you tell me, what was responsible for his restored sight? It wasn't the pool of Siloam, was it? It was not the water in the pool of Siloam. It was the power of God on earth, Jesus Christ. But he chose a very unusual, from a human perspective, method to bring about that cleansing. The blind man didn't question. Will you see what the blind man saw? Many will not. Many absolutely refuse to see what the blind man saw. And so when they hear the words from Jesus himself, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, they deny the latter part of that statement. You can no more be saved by denying the latter part of that statement than the blind man could have come back seeing if he had denied the latter part of the commandment to go wash and wash in the pool of Siloam. There's absolutely no question about that. Who could deny it? What if he had gone to the pool of Siloam, he got there and he decided, this has gone far enough, this is ridiculous. There's nothing in this water that's going to save me. I believe I can be uh, saved uh, in terms of seeing by the power of, of Jesus. I'm not going to get down into that water. He would have still been blind. What about those who say, well, he who believes and is baptized will be saved? Yes, but then Jesus went on to say, he who does not believe will be condemned. He did not say, he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. He just said, he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, as we've said before, why would Jesus be guilty of redundancy and nonsensical statements? He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. If a person will not believe, he will not be baptized, and even if he is baptized without believing, his baptism would do him no good. So there was no point in Jesus saying, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe and is not baptized will not be saved. If you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. That would have been redundancy, to say the least. Belief leads to obedience. That's the point. And that's the point here with the blind man. He believed what Jesus said, and because he believed, he did what? He went to the pool of Siloam, and he washed what if he had not believed what Jesus told him? He would have never gone to the pool of Siloam in the first place. If you don't believe what Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, you're not going down into the baptistry anyway. 
So Jesus wouldn't say he who believes or does not believe and is not baptized will not be saved. If you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. If this man didn't believe, he'd never gone to the pool of Siloam. He would have never put one foot in the pool of Siloam. He would have never washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam had he not believed. But his belief was the kind of belief that caused him to go and to wash. And he came back seeing, not because of the water in the pool, but because of the power of the Son of God in the command that he gave to cleanse him. Now you tell me the difference between this situation and the water of baptism in which the blood of Christ, the power of God, is applied to cleanse us from sin. You see, when you go down into the water to be baptized, you're not counting on the water to cleanse you. You're counting on the blood of Christ. The point is... The blood of Christ is promised to be applied only in that burial. Why? I don't know. Why did Naaman have to dip seven times? Why did Jericho have to fall the way it did? Why did they have to look upon the brazen serpent? Why did this man have to go to the pool of Siloam and wash? I don't know. I don't have to know. All I know is that that's what God said. And when I do what God said, as they did what God said, the result will be the same. And until I've done what God said, the result will never be the same. And I will still be in my sins. Because the blood of Christ is the only substance that can cleanse me from sin. And the only place where God has promised to apply that blood is in a burial in water. He tests my faith to see how complete it is. Will I have enough faith? to span a four-foot baptistry, go down into that water, be buried for the remission of my sins, and rise to walk in newness of life. The blind man had enough faith to go to the pool of Siloam and to do just that. Well, there's much more that we could talk about in this account, and I encourage you to read the account in its uh, entirety through verse uh, 41, through the entire chapter, because you see in verse 8 beginning the neighbors and their response. Apparently his countenance changed to the point that some of them didn't even believe that uh, it was he. Uh, and they, uh, others said, he said, yes, I'm, uh, it's me, I'm here, I'm it. Uh, the Pharisees uh, questioned him. The Pharisees questioned his parents. The Pharisees and their prejudices so clearly seen, tragically, in this account to the point that they finally cast him out from them because he continued to stand by the account. And ultimately, when the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus realized that he had been cast out, he sought him out, found him, verse 35, and said to him this, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The growth of the man's faith is seen there as he ultimately, when he's confronted with the Son of God and realizes the power of the Son of God and the miracle that had been performed, He expresses his faith, and he acts upon that faith by falling down and worshiping the Son of God. And the Son of God accepted that worship, showing that he is God. He is God. Peter wouldn't accept it at the household of Cornelius, remember, because he was a man. 
Jesus accepted it because he is God as well as man at this time. You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Lord, I believe. The question is, will you believe? Will you believe as this man did, enough to do what the Lord has instructed us to do to become his followers, to be able to be privileged to worship him in spirit and truth as his children, as his disciples, to express that faith? You must express it in the very same way that the blind man did. Oh, not in doing the same particulars, but in obedient faith. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Belief followed by repentance of sin. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. By confessing Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And then by being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. Then and only then do you rise from that watery grave to walk in newness of life and to be able to worship as this man did when he came to the full realization this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you've come to that realization, you've obeyed the gospel, but you're here this morning as one who has not continued to worship and work and live in accordance with the will of God, and you've sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church for which he shed his precious blood and need to come home to that body and to the Lord himself, then we plead with you to do that in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in that public way. As we stand to sing, will you come?